invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount is what the sermon was called that is the longest sermon we have that Jesus preached uh, recorded in the Bible. It covers Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In that sermon, he is describing what a true relationship with God looks like, what it means to have real faith in him, what it means to be his child, to be a true believer. And throughout that sermon, he's contrasting false religion, which is all external, that just focuses on the actions, and he's dealing with the heart. And in the middle of chapter 6, he begins to talk about things we can set our hearts upon, where we can lay up treasure in this life. Follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. Hear God's word. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's bow for prayer one more time. Our Father, in this area of what we set our hearts upon, we need great help. You've told us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we ask for nourishment for our hungry souls. We pray that you might awaken our hearts if we are spiritually dead, that you might use this, your word, to mold us to be more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We talk a lot about discipleship here at First Presbyterian Church. And though it's not the only one, we believe that one of the marks of a disciple is this person is experiencing life transformation. Perhaps in how we handle material things is the most transforming area of all for a true believer. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching to large crowds of people. And he is asked by three different groups of people what they should do to demonstrate fruits of their repentance. And he gives three answers in, in Luke chapter 3. First, he says everyone should share clothes and food with the poor. Then he says tax collectors should not pocket extra money. And he also says that soldiers, soldiers should be content with their wages and not extort money from people. Now, each of these three answers relates to money and possessions, but no one had asked John about money and possessions. They had asked what they should do to demonstrate spiritual transformation, repentance in their lives. And John, John the Baptist, knew that how we handle money and possessions is central to our spiritual lives. So here we are in the Sermon on the Mount. As I mentioned, this, this long sermon that Jesus preached to a large multitude of people. They had gathered on the side of a hill, and that's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. He's describing a true Christian, a true believer, a true lover of God. 
And now halfway through the sermon, he says something so radical, so outrageous, what would appear on the surface to be so ridiculous, it would almost seem as people would have laughed out loud when he said it. Because when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, to an unbeliever, the response would be, what? Where else is there to store them? If not here and now, then when and where? And he gives a twofold response, almost anticipating the questions. First is the negative, do not store up. We must beware of applying this strictly to money. In the verses that follow, money is mentioned, but it's talking about something broader here with this treasure, because treasure is a very broad term. Uh, it's not what you have, but what you think about what you have. And we know from other scripture that there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with wealth, there's nothing inherently wrong with money and the things it can buy. And so we have to go deeper, because what he's dealing here is with a person's attitude toward all of life. He's dealing with where you get your satisfaction, where you put affections. And so he is saying don't confine your interests, your ambitions, your hopes just to this life. Why? Because they're wrong? No, because they're temporary. They will not last. Now, the reason I say we have to apply this in a broader sense than only to money because Poor people need this as well. Poor people need not to store up treasure on earth. We all have treasures in some shape or some form. It may not be money. It may be your, your spouse that you love dearly and maybe find your security in. It may be your children or grandchildren or whole extended family. It may be some gift that you have that is not valuable from a monetary standpoint, but you place incredible esteem and affection on that. Some people treasure their house or their second house or some activity or interest or hobby. So no matter what it is, no matter how big or small it is, if it is everything to you, then that is your treasure. That is the thing for which you are living. Now, this is the danger that the Lord is warning us about at this particular point. He's saying don't treasure anything that will stop in this life. So I wrote down this week questions to ask myself about things I am interested in. Will this thing, will this interest, will this hope, will this goal, will this possession end with this life? Or will it last forever? Does this have eternal implications? Now that's the negative part. Do not store up treasures on earth because they're temporary. The positive part in verse 20, do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now one of the basic guidelines for interpreting the Bible is we interpret Scripture with Scripture. There are many guides for interpreting the Bible, many rules for biblical interpretation. We need to know what kind of literature we're dealing with, whether it's psalm, proverb, prophecy, teaching passage like this one, whether it's a uh, uh, biographical kind of historical narrative. But then once we determine that, if we come to a place that's rather obscure, like this verse, don't lay up treasure and uh, don't store up your treasure here, but store up treasure in heaven, and we think, well, what does that mean? The best 
and most basic rule of interpretation is find another place in Scripture that uses the same phrase that may give more explanation. And in this case, we have one in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He uses the same phrase. Here's what it says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And then in 1 Timothy 6, verse 19, he says this, In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So here it takes the same principle from the Sermon on the Mount, laying up treasure in heaven, and it applies it for us to do good with the riches we have, with the wealth that we have, to be rich in good deeds. Christ also acknowledges that when he refers to people that he will uh, compliment and esteem by saying, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. In that sense, we store up riches as we do deeds of mercy and compassion to others, often that no one will even notice, but God notices. So how do we put this into practice? How in the world do we put this into practice? Well, we have to have a right view of life, and that begins with knowing God. So let me, let me review for you how a person can know God. The Bible tells us there's a God who made everything that there is. He made you, and he made me. He made all people. He made us in his image. And created our first four parents, Adam and Eve. And they were not only physically alive like we are, but they were spiritually alive. They had a spiritual life where they literally walked and talked with God. But then something happened. They broke a commandment that God had given to him. They disobeyed God. And the Bible calls that sin. And the result of that sin was their spiritual death. Not physical death. They lived a long time after they sinned. But their spiritual death. They died spiritually. They suffered their, the consequences of their crime against God. But even in punishing them, there in the opening chapters of Genesis, he promised, even at that time, a redeemer who would come later, who would pay for their sins. You and I are born where Adam and Eve ended up. We are born spiritually dead. We do not have that sixth sense, or whatever it was they had, that spiritual sense that they were originally created with. And so we have problems of sin and resulting death from that. We not only inherit that from them, we choose. We have all chosen to commit crimes against God. And he says the punishment or the wages, the payment for those sins is death. Now there's something inherent with all, within most of us, if not all of us, to where we think, though, I'll just try and do good things. And if there is a God, I'll try and appease him by the good things, the right things that I do. If I just try hard enough... And even if I fail, God will see the intentions of my heart. He'll recognize my motives, and therefore I will do enough, and I can achieve being right with him, and he will accept me. But the Bible says the truth is there's nothing, nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. In fact, all the good deeds in the world, if we could total them up, would not be enough to take away the guilt from our sin and our problems of sin and death. Now, that's the bad news. If I were to stop at that point, there's no hope for any of us. 
But thankfully, God is loving and he's merciful. And in his love, he sent a substitute, that redeemer that he promised in the opening chapters of Genesis. He sent him to take the punishment for us. Jesus, he sent him, he became a man. No other substitute would do. He lived a perfect life. He never disobeyed God. He loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. Then he allowed himself to be arrested and convicted and nailed to a Roman cross, not for his own sin, because he had no sin. He became a substitute for others. And when he was on that cross, God put all my sins on him, and he punished him in my place. He took the punishment and the penalty for my sins, and he made a complete, a full payment as he died on that cross. This was the great demonstration of God's love for us. The wages of sin is death. So Jesus died. He had to die. His body was taken down from the cross. It was placed in a borrowed tomb. Roman soldiers were put there not to keep him in, but to keep people out who would come and steal the body. Three days later, he rose physically, bodily from the grave, and over a period of 40 years, he appeared to various crowds and groups of people one time to more than 500 people, a larger crowd than this at one time. And before he ascended to heaven, he told his followers to go into all the world and to tell people about this gift of eternal life. So if you receive the gift of eternal life, you don't receive it by trying to work for it. You must believe that Jesus was God the Son, that he was perfect, that he died in your place, that he took the punishment your sin deserved, that you cannot make yourself right with God by your own works. And now you turn from going your own way and living for yourself, and you turn toward him, living for him. And at that point, God is a master of your life. And when that happens, and only when that happens, does this make sense. Because now, for as a believer, I must see my life as that of a pilgrim. I am traveling through this life, but this is not my ultimate destination. I am headed toward a city, an everlasting city, and this life is temporary. That's what Hebrews 11 says. It mentions a lot of famous people of faith from the Old Testament. It said they walked as seeing him who is invisible. They said they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And so they were headed to a city whose builder and chief architect is God. Take, for example, Moses. He had unbelievable prospects in this world. In Pharaoh's family, wealthy, powerful, smart, intelligent, influential. And yet Hebrews said he had respect for the reward that would come. And he gave all of that up for a city yet unseen. Now we have to start with that principle. Because if you have a right view of yourself as a believer, as a pilgrim in this life, as a child of God, going ultimately to my heavenly Father, then everything else falls into the right perspective. So we see ourselves then as stewards or trustees or managers, that we are not the permanent holders of these things that we have, these possessions, these goals, these abilities, these whatever, whatever resources God has placed within our hands. Maybe our intellect, it may be yourself, it may be your personality. To a non-believer, if you were like me, I thought I owned it all. 
But a Christian starts by saying, I am not the possessor of these things. I merely have them on lease. They are loaned to me. They do not belong to me. I cannot take them with me. I cannot take my gifts and abilities with me. I am but a custodian of these things for a short time. And so the question we have to face each day is how can I use these things for the glory of God? Because it is God that I will meet. I will face Him one day and I will give an account for the things with which He has blessed me. So as a Christ follower, I must be careful how I use those things and my attitude toward them. Now that's the way we lay up treasures in heaven. It all comes back to the question of how you view yourself how you view yourself and how you view life in this world. So do I tell myself every day that I have passed this amount of time from 24 hours ago yesterday, I have passed another milestone never to be repeated. I am moving, I am moving, and I am not going to pitch my tent here. I cannot go back. I am a child of my father, He's placed me here for his purpose and not my own. So I must merely be a caretaker of these things. I read what Martin Lloyd-Jones said this week, and I love the phrase. He referred to how we relate to things in this life, and he used a phrase that we should be in a state of blessed detachment. <laughs> I liked that. Blessed detachment. Not that we don't care, not that we don't engage, not that we don't relate, but at the same time, I realize this is temporary. Now, I want to switch gears. I want to give you two general principles about giving in general, and then I, I guess I, I want to give you general principles about giving in general. And then I want to tell you about John Wesley's instructions, okay? So that's where we're going these last few moments. Two observations about giving. First, giving begins with the heart. Now I'm talking about not so much giving time, I'm talking about giving financially. Some believe that giving begins with how much you have, that it begins with your checkbook. But really it begins with the person, as I just mentioned. It's a change of heart, of coming to faith in Christ. And someone has said, we can give without loving, but we cannot love without giving. I've mentioned to you before, I think it's been a few years, that when I was young, uh, my, my mom and daddy, we were in Montgomery, Alabama until I was in the third grade. Then we moved to Gadsden, Alabama, where I continued my education in the third grade. But in Montgomery, they would, they would take us to church. Some Presbyterian church, I don't remember the name of it. I have an older sister who's two, two years older, so the four of us would go, and my daddy would sit next to me. All I remember is I wore a suit. He'd wear a suit of clothes. Here's this little boy sitting there. And, and my dad had the basic things needed for church at that time. He had a package of certs. I haven't bought a cert in 20 years, but I guess they still sell them, the little tube and the aluminum-type paper. And so he would notice I'd be fidgeting or whatever's happening, so he'd bump me on the shoulder, and here, here would come the certs. He'd even peel it back so I could just reach over and, and grab it. And those things lasted a long time, you know. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask one of the older people here what a cert is. The other thing he would do is when they would pass the offering plates in preparation for that, he would hand me some money a dime or a quarter, something like that. And he'd say, here, you put, you put that in the plate, offering plate, and I would do that. Now, I came to faith in Christ a number of years after that, 
later on as a teenager. And when I first thought about giving and I thought back to the way my dad would give me money and I'd put it in the offering plate, I thought, that's that's no way to teach somebody to give. It didn't cost me anything. It wasn't any sacrifice to me. But you know what? I have grown to appreciate that very thing that my father did. See, my father gave me things and then I gave them. That's exactly what the Bible says now as his child. God entrusts me with things. He gives me things. And now I give back, give over what he's already given me. And the premise in verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's the idea that where we put our treasure, our heart follows. I mentioned to the inquirers class a week or two ago when we were talking about the whole area of giving and tithing. I said, for example, let's say you've never invested in stocks and you buy some stock in Microsoft and maybe you buy some stock in Coca-Cola and maybe you've never had any interest before in those companies. I said, I promise you, once you invest some money there, you walk and buy a newspaper and you see a headline about Microsoft, you will read it. And you didn't read it before. And you didn't care. And when you see that Coca-Cola is expanding to another country, you'll be concerned. That's just normal. Our, our hearts follow that where, where our treasure is. So that's the first principle. Giving begins with the heart. And the second is giving of smaller amounts prepares us to give larger amounts. Because there is a, there's a myth that many of us believe, which is, well... I know that giving is important, and when I make more money or when I have some kind of windfall, then I will be in a position to give or tithe or give sacrificially. And that's common thought. I'll tithe or I'll give sacrificially when the children are out of college, if ever. I'll tithe when the mortgage is paid off. When the car is paid off, when the medical bills are paid off, when I have saved enough for retirement, when the school loans are paid off, listen, there's, there's never, I probably every, of every age could probably say, there's never a time that there's not some extenuating demand on us. And so if you wait and say, oh, I believe in giving, I just don't think it's my time yet, that will never happen because the challenge in the scriptures about giving is always on today, what we have now, what we are in control of, so to speak, now. One man said the person who waits to do a great deal of good at once will never do anything. Jesus said in Luke 16, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. I think Jesus was saying, if we aren't faithful and sacrificial with what we have now, why do we think we'll be faithful when we have a lot, if we have a lot? Rick Warren is pastor of Saddleback Church out in Orange County, California. I began listening to some of the things he said and things he wrote before no one knew who he was. I, he, he and his wife, Kay, finished seminary in Texas, 
they had spent the last year of seminary praying about where to plant a church. They were Southern Baptist, and they, they left seminary, loaded up their things in a U-Haul, drove out to Orange County, California. They'd studied all the demographics in America and finally decided that is where we need to plant a church. And I heard him interviewed by James Dobson probably 20 years ago. And I, I was impressed with the sacrificial lifestyle that in what, I mean, they literally drove into crowded traffic on, and began their church when they rented the apartment, they invited the, the person in the office of the apartment to come to their, their place. They were going to start a church. And they just started meeting people and neighbors and people that lived there, and they, they literally were church planters in the truest sense of the word. I don't agree with everything Rick Warren says or does, but I, uh, I respect his life. Uh, and I, a number of years ago, after The Purpose Driven Life, after that book became a national bestseller, I read an interview in a credible magazine with him. And he said that his wife Kay, who has suffered from cancer over the past number of years herself, he said after that book, which was, he had written books on Bible study and lots of things like that, but that book became a bestseller. And he said after it became a bestseller, he said that he and his wife Kay found themselves wealthy, almost overnight, recipients, as he said, of much wealth. And they immediately made five decisions. The first was they did not change their lifestyle at all. No major purchases, no new cars, no move to a bigger house, nothing. They said, we're leaving our lifestyle the same. Second, he stopped receiving a paycheck from the church. Now, don't get carried away with this, folks, as I read this to you. But <laughs> he stopped receiving a paycheck from the church that he had planted 25 years before. And he repaid 25 years of his salary to Saddleback Church. And they created three charitable foundations. And he and his family began to what he called reverse tithe. In other words, rather than living off 90% and, tithe and giving 10%, they lived off 10% and gave away 90%. And either he or his wife in the interview, I can't remember which, said, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. Now, it's my contention that if a person waited to be sacrificial in their giving until they were in a position with a lot of money, you know, it probably won't ever happen. They learned those disciplines when they did not have much, and then it carried over. Some of you here, some of you young people, you don't believe me right now, but some of you are going to be managers of lots of wealth in the future. And you, you, don't, you don't even see it coming. And I would urge you now, even if you're a college student or high school student, learn to give sacrificially. And I know it's complicated. It was complicated for me. It was complicated for others when I was mainly living off my parents' income. But I learned to tithe even with that, not in rebellion against them. They knew what I was doing. But then when God prospers you more, you will have already learned the disciplines so that you can handle much more money that way rather than waiting until that time. So my observations about that is people who are very wealthy and generous usually reach those convictions before they had wealth, and they were generous when they had far less, okay?
I've got about three minutes, so let me tell you now about John Wesley. We all know, I assume, who John Wesley was. He lived, it's easy to remember, almost the entire 1700s. He was born in 1703. He died in 1791. So you think of the 1700s, John Wesley, along with many others. We look back at him as a founder of the Methodist Church, the Methodist denomination, but his influence then and now was really through the entire Christian church, at least in the English-speaking world. Uh, it was a, a, an incredible century that included not only the American Revolution, but things that were going on in Europe with lots of changes with, with economic levels. And so he spoke things and dealt with teaching about money that we still go back to today. If you listen to sermons on, and read books about Christian giving, inevitably John Wesley will be quoted. I, th I think he had a lot of insight from experience. And there's one quotation that I've said, and you probably heard, that John Wesley said, make all you can, speaking of money, save all you can, and give away all you can. Now, I didn't say it quite like that. He would have put it, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Now I want to explain to you what he meant, because at least one of those can be greatly misunderstood. The first one, gain all you can, make all you can, is the acknowledgement that he saw money itself as not being good or bad, but it could be used for great good, that God had put money on the earth because God is wise and gracious. And he said it's not money that's the problem, it's the use of it or the love of it. And so he was quick to point out all the good that comes from money rightly spent. And he said, we may be a defense for the oppressed. Money may help us to be a means of help to the sick. And it may be a means to ease them that are in pain. So he saw money as a great tool by which good could be done. Uh, and he didn't think Christians should take on a monastic lifestyle. Uh, he envisioned Christians working in all realms, all professions and jobs, and participating in the, the free market economy like everyone else. And so that's where he said, make all you can. Um, that we are to be industrious, that you, we are to use every legitimate means to succeed in business and in work. Okay, that's the first one, make all you can. Second, and this is one that's misunderstood, is save all you can. When I first heard that, I thought he meant stockpile money. You know, build up your 401k, build up your annuities or retirement. That's not what he meant. As I read more about it, he meant that Christians should scrutinize the way we spend money and save money whenever possible. And so he was, did not think we should live a luxurious life. Excuse me. He said we should be diligent. In other words, if you could make do with clothing that, that cost half as much as other clothing, and this would meet your needs as well as that one, don't spend the extra money just because of, of luxury. Now, the irony is, I wrote out these paragraphs sitting at Starbucks with my $5 cup of coffee, and he lists four questions about spending. One, and we should, he thinks believers should ask ourselves these questions. Here's the first one. In spending this money, am I acting like I own it 
the money that is, or am I acting like the Lord's trustee? In spending this money, am I acting like I own it, or am I acting like the Lord's trustee? I'll put these on the blog this week. Second, what scripture requires me to spend money this way? What scripture requires me to spend it this way? Third, can I offer up this purchase as a sacrifice to the Lord? And fourth, will God reward me for this expenditure at the resurrection of the just? Will he reward me on the resurrection day? Now, that's what he meant by save all you can. And then lastly, and I'll conclude, give all you can. He meant that we should make all we can and cut our expenses and save all we can so that we can give generously. That was the motivation for the first two. Make, save, so as to give. So he said a Christian gains and then saves in order that the money can be given. Now he said is simply, he said for a person who simply makes money and stores it away, deposits it, he said you may as well throw your money into the sea. Not to use it is effectually to throw it away. Now that was his opinion. We may not all agree with it. Because he said the reason for all work, the reason for all saving by living a nominal lifestyle is so that money can be given to do good things in the world. And all this was based on his idea of what the Bible teaches about stewardship. Now I'm going to slam the brakes on here. I'm out of time. But I'm, I am because this is the first half of a two-part sermon. But if you've been listening, I hope that you would be asking yourself some uncomfortable questions which are, how can I give sacrificially when I have so many obligations? How will I make ends meet if I'm giving away? How will I pay the bills? Who will take care of me? And guess what? Those are the questions that Jesus answers in the latter part of this chapter, and Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we desire to stand before you and give an account in a, as a servant who's faithful. We need wisdom. We need constant wisdom uh, day by day, month by month, especially in the areas of where we put our treasures and what we set our affections upon. Thank you that you've not neglected these important things in your word. Help us to value what will last forever, what will, what will matter 10,000 years from now. In Jesus' name, amen.